Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning everybody. On this cool, overcast and even rainy youth day, so I would advise to listen in bed, have a cup of coffee, relax. I will go through some of the big issues of the week um, and see what we could do. Sikhle Big Daddy Liberty is, I think he's out doing stuff because it is youth day. Um, either that or um, the youth just can't take the, the, the pace. Um, and our guest fell ill, so I will try and fill all the, all the roles that are possible. So what I'm going to do is bring to you largely um, information and discussion over issues that we have raised in the, our online portal, The Daily Friend, and a bit beyond, And but all, 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 all pertinent. And I'm going to pick up with the with a news item about the Eastern Cape, uh, the, the strike that the uh, nurses and cleaners have gone on because they haven't been provided with uh, uh, equipment to protect them from the coronavirus and to protect their staff, their, sorry, their patients from the coronavirus. Um, the problem is that the Eastern Cape is in a terrible position. It has even requested or it's requested the ANC at a national level to reimpose the alcohol ban in order to cope with COVID. And the, the uh, national, the national ANC has indicated it will not. Now, despite the fact that the Eastern Cape has the highest number of cases and in the early stage of the lockdown, the province was widely criticized for its poor response to the pandemic. In fact, there was even a very damning report published in April 2020 that stated the Eastern Cape government failed to provide adequate resources for the Nelson Mandela Bay municipality to tackle the pandemic. And as a consequence, a furious health minister, Zuele Mkise, proceeded to fill the critical vacancies on the spot. Um, this has really sort of ired the national... Um, ANC because they've been embarrassed by the coverage of the MEC of Health for the Eastern Cape, Sindiswa Gomba, uh, for putting the province on the back foot. And I quote from one ANC leader, you can't appoint an illegitimate person in a critical position and expect to be taken seriously. The reality on the ground is that Comrade Gomba is a disaster. She has no experience and it shows. The response by the province has been lacking. Our hospitals are not equipped there are reports of shortages of personal protective equipment, and we don't have enough beds. This is not because of alcohol. It's because we have poor leadership. Now, that coming from the ANC is both amazing and rich at the same time, because remember, after all, the Eastern Cape is the ANC's province. Um, a, a visit to the Livingston Hospital, which is supposed to be a dedicated isolation unit, has shown a shortage of sterile gloves, gowns, and, empl and uh, employees, including doctors, nurses, and porters, while its accident and emergency unit had not been cleaned for days. And the, the description of it 
has been absolutely and utterly uh, horrific. T- items such as issues such as floors covered in human waste, bags full of medical waste in the corridors, beds without sheets, and naked patients covered in sheets being wheeled into theatres. So when the government says, when sorry, yes, when the government reports that there are only there are six deaths in the Eastern Cape. I think it is highly unlikely that you can take that at face value. What I would assume is that the Eastern Cape government cannot actually for a moment ascertain how many people have died of the coronavirus in their province. Um, So with that in mind uh, and considering the dreadful circumstances that have to be uh, worked in and the fact that the ANC is not prepared to support its own, which is a province it has governed badly for 24 26 years um i think uh, it's it's uh, it's it's ripe with uh, hypocrisy shall we say and uh, with that in mind um i'm going to suggest we go to the next ad break and i'll come back with other more possibly even more distressing stories Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Perhaps just to pick up the, the advert on gender-based violence. There's a little I saw a little item it's actually quite tragic in a different way to to the horrible stories we've been regularly reading in the in the press. The musician Amanda Black has called on the government and the police to intervene in the scourge of gender-based violence in the country. Um, she took to social media to speak about violence against women, including corrective rape against those in the LGBTIQ plus community. Now here's the here's the sobering, really sobering bit. She said she was grateful to have never been raped, but women should not have to count themselves lucky to have escaped abuse. Quote, I count myself so lucky to never have been raped. I can't imagine the kind of damage it does to one's soul. I shouldn't have to count myself lucky. Not being raped and assaulted and killed should be the norm. That strikes me as incredibly tragic. And, but at the same time, the call, the repeated call on the government and the police to intervene is really only partially the story because the issues that generate gender-based violence have so much to do are, are social issues or economic issues. They are not just political issues. And we have to look much more carefully at what are the reasons behind gender-based violence? What motivates it? What causes it? Is, is alcohol, to what extent is alcohol involved? Um, is, is, is jealousy a, a thing fueled by alcohol? Those are the issues we have to look at because in, in, in effect, what the police can do is only come after the fact. Even if they become better at policing, they are an after-the-fact service, and they essentially should at best be playing the role of, of a type of social worker. They cannot resolve the problem. They can certainly do way better, and we've there have been many discussions on that. But it really is a much more complex problem, and I consider that it's an issue that has to be dealt with with kids when they are in their teens to understand the issue and to break away from from attitudes that will ultimately lead to gender-based violence.
Now, um, on a, on a sort of mundane but uh, annoying and crucial matter, we go on to state-owned enterprises. And this has become particularly in the public eye because of ESCOM and most notably recently SAA. There's an article um, by uh, Khaleb Kachalia, the uh, mem- uh, uh, member of parliament of the, of the DA, and he just points out some of the history because we're looking at a new council to advise on how to run the SOEs. And for those of us who are old enough to remember the last effort to run the SOEs, it didn't end so well. And he says that since 1994, the SOEs were positioned to be a key cluster for achieving economic growth and poverty reduction. They were supposedly geared to address market failure and deliver the key infrastructure services such as energy, transport, water, etc. And this was supposed to allow the economy to grow while ensuring equity through access and quality of social services to all citizens. Um, yes, but not so much. He goes on to say that it is common cause that our key SOEs have failed miserably in delivering on their mandate. And they have, and I think this is the most pertinent point. They have moreover been almost single-handedly responsible for driving SA Inc. to the very edge of the fiscal cliff. They're bankrupt, mired in mismanagement and steeped in corruption. And instead of addressing market failure, they represent a comprehensive public sector market failure in the provision of public services at a more optimal level and price. So I don't, I'm not sure that there's anyone that would disagree with that at this stage. Then he goes back into the history of it and he says, this is actually was the state of the SOE in 2010 when the president, then Jacob Zuma, established a presidential review committee on SOEs. And it was during this presidency that a 2015-2016 annual report noted that then Deputy President Sir Ramaphosa, quote, continued the important work of implementing the PRC on SOEs and to support SOEs in distress such as ESCOM, the SA Post Office and SAA. So we're at least looking back 10 years and then five, five years and six years later, the same problem. And this, this committee of luminaries consisted of private sector, academics, Development Bank of South Africa professionals, international business people and politicians. And it was, in terms of reference, were vast. It had to pretty much do everything, strategic management, operational effectiveness. It had to look at governance and ownership, etc., etc. Now, as they say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We have President Cyril Ramaphosa's announcement of the appointment of members of the new presidential state-owned Enterprises Council. And if anything... Since the last council, the situation has worsened. The government has, over the past 12 years, allocated 162 billion rand to financially distressed SOEs, of which ESCOM accounts for more than 80%. Um, nevertheless, the government, the presidency affirms that the council will support the government in repositioning the SOEs. If you believe that, you'll probably believe Anything. So given the council's mandate, which will probably never be realized, it seems a good opportunity to go to the next uh, break. 
Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Welcome back, and this is Sarah Gon. Um, on my own, as the the youth have abandoned me today, so we'll forgive them for that, and we'll carry on, not uh, not notwithstanding their absence. What we would have done in this next portion of the show was to talk to my colleague Herman Pretorius about a campaign that the IRR has initiated, in which we have advised um, diplomats from various countries and the IMF to consider very carefully giving when it gives its money to the to South Africa what it is giving its money to and what undertakings the ANC has or has not or will or will not give what has happened is that um what letters have been sent to lar- the largest donors of the international monetary fund and these are uh, United States Japan China Germany France UK, Italy, India, Russia, Brazil, Canada, Saudi Arabia, Spain, Mexico, the Netherlands, South Korea, Australia, Belgium, Switzerland and Indonesia. And it's a step that we haven't taken lightly. The reality is that our creditors or our benefactors need to know why South Africa has been brought to its knees once again and why the people of this country, especially the poorest and most vulnerable, are enduring what we believe is completely unavoidable hardship. Our message to the donor nations of the IMF is simple. Do not be misled. The provision of financial support to a South African government that has not denounced and distanced itself from the destructive policies that have wrecked the aspirations of generations will be the act of sustaining the hardships South Africans have endured for at least a decade and are likely to continue enduring. What we are asking the IMF to do is to bear in mind government policy and the attention of the ANC and its alliance partners, the SA Communist Party and the, and COSATU, the Congress of South African Trade Unions. We, they have had and continue to have damaging effects on the economy and on the country's prospects of creating a stable, fair and prosperous future. It's actually worth looking at and restating the mandate of the IMF, which is this. It promotes international monetary cooperation and provides policy advice and capacity development support to help countries build and maintain strong economies. The importance of this mandate, especially to developing nations, cannot be overstated. Much is made of transformation, but the most vital transformation is that of transforming hardship and poverty into inclusive, sustainable and real growth. It was 43 years ago that the United Nations Special Committee Against Apartheid convened a summit at the Palais des Nations in Geneva to decide how the international community must respond to the worsening situation in South Africa. And this was following the South African state's use of violence against its own citizens and in pursuit of its own ideological ends and its own political survival. Certainly, South Africa isn't the nation it was then, and for this much credit must go to the people of this country, 
who when duty fell on them to alter the trajectory of the country, made the right decision to give freedom a fighting chance. The changes for the betterment of our country, which essentially we believe have been achieved since 1977 onwards, attest to the strength, integrity and decency of of South African people. Recently, some claims were made that our country was better off under the apartheid regime. In our view, and we've expressed it, this is a sentiment of dangerous inaccuracy that overlooks the dehumanization of black South Africans under the rule of ideologically entrenched racial discrimination. It is a sentiment that ignores the vehemence and vigor with which the IRR fought oppression and for a free South Africa, and which in one way or the other it has done for 91 years. But now it's a travesty that for more than four decades after the summit in Geneva, our people, especially the most vulnerable and the poorest, face circumstances tragically reminiscent of that so appalled by the international community 40 years ago. A violent, oppressive and destructive ideology rules enriching a minority while the majority live in fear, poverty and destitution. At the beginning of this month, it was made public that the South African government had entered into negotiations with the IMF regarding a a bailout of $4.2 billion. The circumstances uh, that have led to this decision have been the governing ANC in alliance, have been by the governing ANC in alliance with the SACP and Kasatu, and have been in development for years. The IR has been monitoring the gradual worsening weakening of the economy. And during this time of Wasted opportunities, the IRR maintained its role of now almost a century. That of being a leading voice in warning successive governments to change course by pursuing alternative, pro-freedom, pro-growth policies and promoting this argument in all spheres of of influence. The IRR has recognized the merit in the South African government seeking to approach the IMF for support. Given the opportunity, this we believe would provide to strengthen the cause of structural change and reforms needed to reverse the decline and malaise that have characterized the South African economy. With the global economic impact of COVID-19 and the accompanying government decisions to deal with the pandemic, the economic situation has become unquestionably dire. And from this has arisen the decision by the ANC, SACP and COSATU to approach the IMF. But we are simply urging the IMF not to overlook the fact that the COVID crisis actually comes on top of several other crises. The the pandemic did not cause the structural weakness in the economy, and it did not undermine the government's ability to improve the lives of all South Africans. It merely put these crises in a more public spotlight. As the IRR has been warning successive governments for well over a decade, it is the failure of the policy that has seen unemployment rise, productivity and economic growth stagnate and decline, and investment and capital flee the country, social unrest increase, and civil dissatisfaction climb. And all of us will have seen it repeatedly. And all this wells from the ANC's deviating significantly from the policy course it pursued to to marked success in the first period of governments from 1994 to approximately 2008. The government was pragmatic. It had restrained fiscal policy and a liberal economic policy, a liberalized economic policy.
The governments of President Nelson Mandela and Mbeki achieved much progress that improved the material circumstances of millions of South Africans, especially black South Africans bearing the unjust burden and the socio-economic devastation of apartheid and its legacy. That important progress was made in writing the fiscal ship of South Africa is illustrated by the extraordinary achievements of budget surpluses in 2007 and 2008, and its domestic debt, its debt to gross domestic product ratio stood at a mere 27%. A testament to the prudence of the government and spending in the preceding decade could not be more obvious. As the fiscal stability improved, economic growth started to resemble the world average for the first time in decades, and that is decades under apartheid rule. The GDP growth rates averaged above 5% for the, first, for the years 2004 to 2007. While the government at the time faced false accusations of so-called jobless growth, our data has shown this to be untrue and politically opportunistic. Unemployment fell by almost 10% in those years. It's only sharp sustained fall since 1994. And then, as we horribly remember, leadership of the ANC changed in 2007 and combined with the economic crisis of 2008 and 9, South Africa's outlook changed for the worst. While state culture has received the bulk of the blame for government failures over the last decade, the reality is that changing government policy are responsible. Fiscal prudence was abandoned in favour of un curbed government expenditure, while state intervention in the economy, which was prevalent during the Mbeki years, was significantly stepped up in mining, labor, agriculture, investment, economic planning, income regulation, and property rights. And now we are reaping the whirlwind of that, of those dreadful and failed policies. As IRR Head of Policy Research, who's appeared on this program, Dr. Anthea Jeffrey, has pointed out in her latest report entitled The Ten-Year Lockdown with Worse Still to Come. While the lockdown has largely been lifted, the country has been in an unacknowledged policy lockdown for at least the last ten years, and particularly triggered by Jacob Zuma's rise to power, who he began implementing radical economic transformation policies aimed at it changing the ownership, control, and the very structure of the economy, and essentially putting it in the government's hands. Dr. Jeffrey says that contrary to widespread belief, RET policies has, have continued under President Sir Ramaphosa, whose rise to power was also facilitated by the SACP, and his new and whose new dawn pledges have thus far proved meaningless. If anything, the president's reform rhetoric has been simply provided, has simply provided cover for major additional RET policies implemented under his watch. Mr. Ramaphosa has also recently made it clear that radical economic transformation must now underpin the transformation of the economy. Now, obviously, as we have said, Often on this on this program, the consequences of this approach are evident and disastrous, and the private sector is being more subjected to more onerous, costly, and damaging regulation, coercive labour laws, 
are becoming more rigid, black economic empowerment goalposts keeping ratcheted up, which we believe is with just damaging effects. And more importantly, property rights are being steadily eroded to the point where the constitution is now to be amended to allow expropriation without compensation. Ten-year policy lockdown has thus severely hobbled the private sector and did so before the pandemic began. The the economy was already in a technical recession. And since there, with more than 10 weeks of of lockdown, crippling the economy and pushing it to its knees, the GDP, warns Business for South Africa, could contract between 10% and 17% this year. The IMF sees the budget deficit reaching reaching 13.3% this year, with public debt as a ratio of GDP rising to 86% in 2021. Despite the state's other liabilities, such as the guarantees of ESCOM debt, and uh, and overall public debt looks set to increase to 110% of GDP by 2023. Now, obviously, every country in the world is suffering to a greater or lesser extent by COVID, and we are no different. But the exacerbation of what we're suffering under COVID from what drove us to the point of essentially bankruptcy at the beginning of the year sets to make this country an economic disaster. Tripartite alliance, Dr. Jeffrey concludes, will seek to bar retrenchments, step up BEE requirements, forge ahead with EWC bills, speed up the introduction of the NHI, and put great pressure on pension funds to divest, to invest in developmental projects managed by state-run institutions. It will demand both a damaging wealth tax and much stricter exchange controls to limit capital flight, although capital flight goes both ways. It will keep pushing for a major shift in monetary policy to gain access to the reserve bank reserves and to reduce interest rates to 0% or less. And then the, the get-out clause for all failing states, start printing money to fund state spending under the rubric of quantitative easing and modern monetary theory. It is In this respect, that we feel it was prudent to write to the diplomatic community and to approach the IMF to point out these facts. It doesn't have to be the way we've described it, which is why we believe the IMF needs to know what is at stake before it considers its potential role in in our case, in helping to build and maintain a strong economy. Now, we have received criticism for essentially almost being treacherous in approaching the IMF and the diplomatic world in under our own auspices. The reality is that we are informing the IMF, we are informing the diplomatic community, and it is we have, do not begin to have the power to make them make certain decisions or not make certain decisions. But with the history that this government has had over the last 10 years of theft, uh, of patronage and of of plunder virtually, that is that has been to the complete detriment of the ordinary people of South Africa, we feel that we felt it was important for the issue to be known that many of these uh, players do know what is going on, but some are reluctant to talk about it or consider it or take it back to their governments. And 
we feel that there is nothing left to lose by saying, if you're going to give South Africa money, please do so on terms that make sure that South Africa enters into a series of policy changes that are will be for the benefit of the people of South Africa and not either for the benefit of the governing party and its acolytes or to the complete destruction of of the part of of the of the sorry of the country through the implementation of socialist policies that have proved to be absolutely destructive there isn't a country that has adopted purely socialist policies which is what the ANC SACP Kasat alliance want to do that has been anything other than mediocre to bad, and in most cases, very few exist. I think there are three left in the world, and they are North Korea, Cuba, and Venezuela. The the genesis of of socialist government, the uh, Soviet Union, disappeared, what is it, 30 years ago? And that in itself should, should send warning bells. But our ANC government seems to be completely and utterly impervious to it. So we're putting our money where our mouths are and putting a representation to the outside world and to the IMF. And with that in mind and giving much food for thought, um, I had you over to the next ad break. Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Right, thank you for returning with us to us after that rather sobering uh, discussion, shall I say or Thought uh, ideas for discussion. I'm going to uh, pre- discuss with you now a Youth Day item. Um, now, you may be aware that Jacob Zuma and his children have set up a Twitter account um, in which they are dispensing their, their wisdom and their experience and their thoughts to the people of South Africa. And Jacob Zuma uh, had, a, has a, had a thought and has a thought for the black youth on Youth Day, um, but apparently the, the full clip will be uh, will be shared today. So I, I haven't seen it yet. I just saw this last night. And former President Jacob Zuma has said, it pains him to see educated black youths being instruments of white people. But at the centre of this is an African child, absolutely problematic for me, is to see Africans who are doctors and professors think like white people. That's a problem, that's a problem I have. Not just having the mindset of white people, but to be the instruments of white people. That just kills me. So apparently, um, as I said, the longer interview will be released by his daughter, uh, Dudu Zuma Zambudla, um, and you've just, you know, I've always thought that Jacob Zuma, I think the bit, one of the best ways to describe Jacob, Jacob Zuma is a scoundrel. And in, this is probably as, as much of a scoundrel as he can be because he's, he's again doing what has become a, a, a favorite sport of a number of ANC politicians. And that is that they're, 
they're essentially making sure that there is a divide between black and black and white. Um, there's no congratulations to black youth on achieving uh, professions like uh, becoming doctors or accountants or uh, be able, being able to uh, to have families and have uh, own houses and to be able to, to improve their lot and and be responsible for their for their own actions and the real results of their lives. No, no, no. Jacob Zuma wants us to um, separate from each other and distinctly that the youth are, that must be supported are black and the youth that must be denigrated are white. And uh, other than sort of thinking that this is extremely distasteful and racist, um, it's, I don't think it's going to stir up anyone and it doesn't warrant hate speech. I think you can most charitably call it hateful speech. But then we have a come on to an item that uh, is a, a, a Damascene moment, shall we? Shall we say, social development minister Lindiwe Zulu has said in the three months since the state of disaster was declared that she never expected the economic impact of COVID nineteen would be so crippling for the poor. Zulu has said that it was an uncertain and worrisome time for government when the ambassador of China tried to prepare South Africa for what was coming and when reality sank in with the surge in numbers overseas, the government had to act fast. However, driving through parts of Johannesburg and seeing how desperately people are trying to reinvent themselves to the extent that she can, Zulu has said that the COVID-19 had exposed the deeper challenge the country was still facing to take better care of the poor. We've been doing the best we can, but it's not enough. This time, we were pushed into being creative and pushed into looking for resources and ensuring we work with the private sector. Now, bear in mind that Minister Zulu is the minister who is, is responsible for the provision of food aid and other aid to poverty-stricken communities to ensure that they have the basics so that they do not suffer from malnutrition and and made worse by a loss of jobs, etc. She is the minister who required that you get formal permission from the relevant provincial authorities in order to provide such aid if you were a a private uh, organisation. And it was particularly absurdly highlighted when a, a, a group, I think it was a church group, who had been giving out food and peanut butter sandwiches to, to destitute people for over 10 years, had ramped up their work and were told that they had to get a, a, a license. So they got a license. Then they were told that they had to get a, a license every single day to do this sort of work. And soon after this information was passed on, the organization found a police car with policemen outside their premises just sitting and watching. Um, there were howls of outrage from South Africans about the this, this astonishing behavior, which was either – an act of complete lack of understanding and stupidity or it was an attempt and and I think it's very much more this to make it as difficult as possible for the private sector to distribute emergency aid 
Um, now she says we're look, looking into resources working with the private sector. So this working with the private sector only became a possible reality when an organisation actually went to the High Court to declare to have that regulation declared uh, invalid, which it was. And in the in the name of of humanity, thank God it was. I mean. The Chayvim listeners of all people will know the importance of private sector largesse in times of crisis. And here we have a minister who has finally come to the, come to, come to the realization. Um, all I can, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I am without words as, uh, I'm, uh, as I'm one to say. So being without words, I'm going to pass you over to the next ad break and we'll come back after that. Hopefully. Having refound some words. Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant, and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty, and property rights. Welcome back. And this final stretch just looks at the issues we'll be looking at this week. I think there will still be fallout from the Black Lives Matter protests and the more violent uh, riots that that have followed and some of the demands that are made and the need to consider how, in fact, changes can actually be made uh, to society and to what extent which changes are warranted and which are not. So that's, I think, going to be the, the focus from the American and the British point of view. Um, from our point of view, I think there's going to be, there's always focus on COVID. And I think we're going to be looking at the realization that the West, the, the action taken by the Western province with regard to testing has got to be followed in the other provinces. And it's even, it's now being suggested for the Eastern Cape, given the fact that there are, well, I think in the region of 23,000 Outstanding test results a month or more after they they were taken, and what the Western Cape has done is it is confining its testing to the risk groups, and this makes huge amount of sense because testing randomly tells you absolutely nothing. So what you really want to do is try and find in whether COVID, whether people are suffering from COVID or, or have the virus. In the groups that are, that are at risk, and those groups are the elderly, and the and the elderly with comorbidities, and youth with co- with comorbidities, but it's mostly the elderly. So I think that is really going to be a, a matter up for discussion. Possibly the other thing, and I, I couldn't, I can't remember exactly, but I think this is the week that the Democratic Alliance and the Freedom Front Plus go to the Constitutional Court to argue the constitutional validity of the entire lockdown. So that will be fascinating, and it could be a game-changer for the way this uh, this ep- epidemic is, uh, is dealt with. We also need to see the postponed matter affecting uh, allowing – Hairdressers to return to work, as that that will also be a, a matter that uh, will come up again, since it was postponed at the request of Minister Tlamini Zuma. So that and more is really what we'll be looking at. Um, I wish I could bring you some good news, but I guess there's not much good news in the in 
in the news. So if I find some, we'll certainly bring it to you. Thanks for being with me on this uh, edition. And could I plead with you to have a look at our written work on dailyfriend.co.za and the IRR's work is on irr.org.za. Some fascinating stuff and uh, controversial stuff to read and enjoy. Thank you very much and see you next week.